Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, JP Barrick, and this is Digital Gold. Known to many as the Bitcoin kid, I started mining cryptocurrency out of my parents' basement back in 2013. The goal of this show is to simplify the crypto world and explore how it changes the way the world thinks about money through conversations with thought leaders in this space. JP Barrick is the founder and CEO of Orem Capital Ventures. All opinions expressed by JP and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Orem Capital Ventures. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Today, I'm joined by Dan Hannum. Dan is the founder of Hannum Capital Management, a capital management company focused on digital and blockchain-based assets exclusively in the blockchain technology sector. Dan is also the CEO of Zenledger and has been fascinated by the custody side of crypto since the beginning of his participation in the space. Before starting Hannum Capital Management, he was a buy-side analyst and portfolio manager at TD Ameritrade, an analyst with Blockchain Capital. Dan has been in the crypto space since the early days and is truly passionate about the future of the industry and helping his clients navigate the world of Bitcoin. Dan, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. Excited to chat some crypto with you and uh, appreciate you having me on. Of course. So my first question I want to jump into is how were you introduced to the world of finance and then how did you end up transitioning or why did you end up transitioning to crypto? Yeah, I'll try to uh, I'll try to make this as short as possible. I guess medium sized story is I originally went to school for criminology. I was a young 17, 18 year old kid who, you know, just wanted to go to school and didn't really know what they wanted to do in life. Went to school originally for criminology. And then my sister was actually up in New York in venture capital and is about three years ahead of me. So she was just getting out of college when I was just getting into school. I mean, opened my eyes to what the what the market looks like for, for someone with a criminology degree versus what it looks like with someone uh, with a finance degree. And I was always good at math and numbers and really enjoyed investing. At the time, had a couple dollars here and there and nothing major. But so that kind of really sparked my interest. And then I went up to New York and visited with my sister for about a week or so. And she set up, still very thankful for, for what she's done for me, but she set up about a week full of interviews with traditional banks, startups, fintech startups in, in the New York City area. And was fortunate enough to be able to get a get a position with Goldman Sachs in, in their internship program. And that's what kind of switched up the, the entire college experience, came back to school, ended up changing my major, ended up going up to New York for the summer and working for Goldman. It was a really great experience. I got into the nitty gritty of what it takes to be in traditional finance. One thing I didn't realize at the time was, you know, you needed a sponsorship to go through your Series 7, and Series 63 and Series 65. So I was like studying on my own, thinking I could just go online and take a test. But it was, it was really amazing to have someone that was willing to sponsor me, really amazing to be in a culture like that. And that's how I originally got, got my start within the traditional finance realm, was lucky enough and I guess fortunate enough to, to do pretty well in, in that initial role and was offered a position outside of school. Came back to school, ended up finishing up my MBA at the University of South Carolina, and then went back up to New York and, and jumped full-time into finance at Goldman. And then I went from Goldman to Morgan Stanley. And then when I was at Morgan Stanley, I had a lot of people around me that were really interested and fascinated with crypto. I was you know, really interested, but more from a passive investment perspective. It, it wasn't something that I thought that I could jump into full time. And this is back in like early 2015. So, you know, completely different market than we have now. I met with a few people and some of the people that I met with were the Stevens Brothers and Brock Pierce at, at Blockchain Capital. They were looking for an analyst to come on and just do all the the nitty gritty grunt work. And I was just looking for an opportunity to be able to pursue my passion full time and was was willing to drop everything in New York and move out to the West Coast. And that's kind of how it, the transition from traditional finance into crypto went. So 
I, I know I said I keep it short, but uh, I guess that's like the medium version. <laughs> no, thanks for sharing that. So when you were with Brock Pierce and you were working and you said you moved over to the West Coast, what exactly were you working on as an analyst in the space, in the crypto space, getting dropped into it? Yeah, pretty much everything. They were just getting the fun off the ground. I had made a probably 15, 20 investments at that time. And this was once again, like back in like late 15, early 2016. So market was completely different. We were still trying to figure out like what everything was going on. One of the original projects that I was originally working on with with Brock and J.R. Willis was MasterCoin, which is one of the first ICOs even before Ethereum. So that was like that sparked an interest into smart contracts into scalability. And that kind of just opened up a, a plethora of other options that, that were interesting to me. But yeah, the original role was just a low man on the totem pole. Just uh, we need to go figure out what's the best hardware wallet, what's the best way to keep our clients fun safe, what's a great custody solution, whether it's like a BitGo or I'm trying to think of some of the other ones that were around at the time, like Anchorage wasn't around and some of the, the newer ones weren't around. So yeah, it was just, you know, I was very fulfilled with crypto and in New York, I was spending a lot of my nights and weekends and pretty much all of my free time, just really uh, studying crypto, speaking with people on, you know, Bitcoin talk forums and Twitter and, and everything else. And so I was just very thankful that someone was able to give me a shot. And at the time I was able to get paid in Bitcoin. So that was probably a risky move at the time, but, uh, but it worked itself out. It'd be two Bitcoin here, or five Bitcoin there. Or if it was a, you know, pretty extensive analysis or research project, it'd be a little bit more than that. So was able to stack some, some Bitcoin pretty early on. And like I said, for me, it was just really thankful that I was given the opportunity to follow my passion and get out of traditional finance. Were there any like early stage companies that you guys passed on that actually ended up taking off at the blockchain capital with Block Pierce that you remember? I'm sure there's a few, none that really like come to mind. I guess there's two kind of disclaimers on that. Like one, the availability of early stage companies at that time was a fraction of what it is today. You can look up today and every week, or it seems every week, either a new company is raising capital or a company that's already raised a seed round is raising an A or they raised an A and they're raising a B, et cetera. So the venture markets in crypto five, six years later are so much more robust than they were then. There really wasn't that many people wanting to get into crypto, wanting to get into crypto full time. And at the same time, the ideas that were coming up weren't very sustainable from a venture perspective. And I think that's something that a lot of people you know, really don't understand with venture capital is that having a small to medium sized business that's you know profitable sounds really good on paper, but sometimes that just doesn't fit within your model. And for us, us now speaking for Hanum Capital, and then even at my time at Blockchain Capital, having those companies that would, you know, 5x, 10x, 20x, where you know, the ways that you're able to keep your fund going and keep moving forward, so yeah, the, the market was just completely different. I'm sure there's a couple companies that we, we passed on that either raised capital or an interesting thing to think of is some of those companies or some of those ideas that may have been passed on have come back around three, four, five, six years later. And now they're, they're companies that have a good product market fitter or just the timing. And I guess a very easy example of that is like the Chewy.com and, and Pets example. Or if you look, or excuse me, Pets.com and Chewy, where you look at like Pets.com came out in the early 2000s. This was before people were using cell phones and they weren't really comfortable ordering things online. And now you look at Chewy, which is exactly like the exact same business model, sell dog food and dog treats and dog toys online. But they did it in 2008 when people were used to smartphones, people were used to shopping online, and now they're like a $10 billion business. So there's a lot of those where it's not necessarily that the product or service was wrong or that the team was bad. It's just the market timing wasn't there. Yeah, there's probably a few that we had either passed on that have come back around or a few that 
may have been good ideas at the time, but just the, the market went in a different direction. You know, the, the good thing for me is I was able to, the way I look at it is I was able to be the Indian a little bit before I became the chief. And, and I think having the experience of, of working with people who really knew what they were doing, really knew the markets, really had connections, was really important and really set myself up for success, getting into raising my own capital and then starting my own fund and managing that. So very thankful for, for my time there. And a lot of those connections have held through over the last five, six years, where some of our earlier investments through Hanum Capital came from connections that when I was at Blockchain Capital, or you know, they were employees at a company that we invested in that left and started a new company or things like that. Yeah, it was a great time, learned a lot, and, and definitely wouldn't be in the same position I am now without going through that experience. So Dan, you mentioned when you went from the Indian to the chief. I, I love that analogy. Can you explain or talk a little bit farther on when that realization came up that you wanted to make your own firm, your own VC company, and kind of what made you do it? And how did you feel you know, during that process? Yeah, great question. So I guess to answer like the, the first half, like the Indian, the chief thing, I think we've seen a lot of funds and especially more liquid funds. Once again, quick disclaimer, Hanum Capital, we're an early stage venture fund. So we don't invest in liquid tokens. We're not buying token ABC and trying to sell it tomorrow for more than we bought it. We're typically investing anywhere between 250K to 1.5 million in the seed or series A stage. So just like a quick disclaimer on that, but we've seen a lot of those liquid traded funds where someone comes in, they write a decent amount of content, they get a pretty big following on, on Twitter or within the crypto community. They raise capital from outside investors, but they don't really have a solid track record and they haven't gone through the ups and downs of the market. So when you're investing in, in assets, when everything is going up, it's somewhat easier to make money. But the real the real skill is being able to navigate the waters when, when it's a little bit murkier. So unfortunately, we've seen some high profile funds in our space over the last two, three years that have came out of nowhere, raised a bunch of money, uh, the darlings of the crypto markets for a little bit, and just as quickly lost all their capital and went right out of business. And I think a lot of that happened from, there's a difference between managing your own capital and, and the risk reward element to that, and then managing other people's capital. And I think that was one of the amazing elements that I learned, not only at Blockchain Capital, but in traditional finances, being responsible and being a fiduciary to other people's capital is, is way different than just investing your own capital. So I guess that's like the way that I look at like the chief and in Indian perspective is I really wanted to learn the nitty gritty. I wanted to see the good and the bad. And there's definitely, whether it was at Goldman or Morgan Stanley or Blockchain Capital, there's things that every company has its, its fault or communication issues or whatever. So it was really important for me to have that experience to see what a really well-run company looks like, what a company that's really successful looks like, but still has some issues. And then just timing. Brock was getting into a new uh, phase within his life of, of getting more full-time involved with EOS and Block One and was getting less and less involved with the fund. And I got an opportunity to sit on a, a board for a token called Gear or a Green Energy and Renewables token. We had Stan Barty, Jim Rogers, Larry King, some other high profile individuals on board. And, and I was the ICO advisor for that project. So that was a really fascinating look into how to raise quote unquote non-dilutive capital at the time, how to manage an ICO. And through that experience, I was able to get some of these really wealthy individuals participating in this ICO. And we were able to get them in at, I don't know, I don't remember the exact numbers, like six tenths of a cent, like something like tiny. And then through the crypto markets of 2017, that token went on to be like 14, 15, 16 bucks in like two weeks. And they all put in a million bucks here, two million bucks here, five million bucks here. And maybe to the listeners, that sounds like a lot of money. But to someone like someone like those guys, that's a drop in the bucket. To wrap up the story a little bit, 
they were able to make five, 10, $20 million in two weeks. And one thing that rich people like is getting richer. So they were like, how do we get involved in crypto? And that was with the turning point where I, I felt comfortable with the experience that I had. I felt comfortable with my connections. I felt comfortable with all the things I was able to look at that that kind of venturing out on my own kind of made a lot of sense. And then I was lucky and fortunate enough to have four LPs that really believed in what we were doing, our thesis, our value prop, how we were getting into crypto. And then for me, I was able to be early enough into crypto that I was able to make a little bit of money for myself. So I put up out of the 25 million that we raised for our first one, I put up a million of that of my own money. And I think that really made people feel a little bit more comfortable knowing that for them, it's a drop in the bucket. For me, it's my entire net worth. So if this thing doesn't work out, I'm, I'm not going to be in good shape. So I think that skin in the game made them feel a little bit comfortable. The fact that I had already made them a considerable amount of capital in a short amount of time, I think gave them the insight that I knew what I was doing. And that's how Hanum Capital got started. We were able to raise $25 million back in early 2017. And then I've been able to scale up the operations of our company and, and, and our investments since then. So with Hanum Capital and the creation of that and the day-to-day running process or of the company, what's one thing that you thought was going to be easy, but actually turned out to be either much harder than you expected or just completely different in how you ended up handling the problem or kind of that opportunity? Yeah, I I think one thing that I think some people may not realize is running a fund is way more than just putting a dollar here or a dollar there. The, The operational aspect of having a solid team, having great analysts, having great legal, having great accounting really makes a big difference. And that was probably the the biggest struggle is at the time, this is 2017, four years ago. So I was 24, 25 years old. So for someone of my age to go to some of these, you know, higher profile people at, at Goldman, at Morgan Stanley, at Citigroup and say, Hey, I would love for you to I would love for you to get rid of your four or five six hundred thousand dollar salary. I'll pay you eighty k and uh, come work for me. So it was it was a little bit of a challenge to get really great people on board, and I think that's a challenge whether you're running a venture capital company or for us, a lot of our portfolio companies have that same challenge: getting quality people on part of your team, and not only quality people from an intelligence perspective, but just like quality individuals, like people that you want to work with and people that you're excited to wake up in the morning. And that's not to make it sound like it's all sunshines and rainbows. There's still, there's always some day-to-day arguments or some disagreements or whatever, but just really building a a team was an interesting perspective because I wasn't the one hiring anyone at, at Goldman or Morgan Stanley or Blockchain Capital or any of my other stops. Hiring, firing, promoting, trying to figure out the company organization was really new to me. And it, it's been a great experience learning a, a lot about a lot about that. But, but yeah, to answer your question, I think that was probably the, the most challenging thing was to get some high profile people that had very solid careers and very solid jobs to be willing to throw that away and take a chance on a, a younger kid. And I think one of the ways that I was able to make that happen is we gave equity in the company and carry in the fund to a lot of our early employees. Financially incentivizing them long term was more important to me than, hey, we'll give you a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollar salary. But at the same time with, with running a venture capital fund, Typically, that initial capital or your management fee is really how you get the fund off the ground. What we have was a 2 and 20% management fee and then a 20% performance fee. 2% of $25 million sounds like a lot of money, but it's really not. So trying to get X amount of people hired, trying to get good accountants, good lawyers, get good office space, good everything that goes into it was a challenge. But we've been able to scale and 
through that challenge, we were able to find the right individuals, the people that were willing to think of this more long-term and the people that were truly here for the right reasons. And it's worked out, but I guess that's definitely was one of the biggest challenges was just the back end and the operational side of running a fund, not necessarily a uh, dollar goes here or a dollar goes there, if that makes sense. Orem provides a bridge to the digital currency mining world for individual investors, financial institutions, and energy companies. By combining over seven years of mining experience, 24-7 management, and directly aligned incentives, Orem's managed mining program is the simplest way to enter the digital currency mining market. To learn more, please visit OremCapitalVentures.com. No, that makes complete sense. Was there any points in running the fund where you know, it might not necessarily didn't perform well, or was just on that moment of time where it's right the bounce before the crazy 2017 increase where you're on the edge of your seat, making sure everything's going well, or after you've deployed the capital? Did you have any of those interesting moments in life if you can grasp what I'm trying to ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think you hit the, the nail on the head. 2017 was a pretty crazy year for us. We we raised our capital in February. So I think February 8th of 2017 was right when we finished up the first round. So 25 million in the door, all, all signed away. We had a five-year lockup period, which most venture capital firms have some type of lockup, whereas a liquid fund will typically have either quarterly or, or annual redemptions, where if you're not happy, you can take your money back out. For us, it was you're putting your money in for five years, and if you want to back out, good luck. <laughs> so that the ability to have that lockup really allowed us to think long-term, and especially with venture capital. And at that time, there really still, even 2017, there really wasn't that many people that wanted venture capital. For some of the listeners, and I know this is a, a crypto-specific show, so I'm, I imagine most people are familiar with, with ICOs, but a big kind of promise, quote-unquote, with ICOs is that you're able to raise non-dilutive capital. So you're able to raise capital without giving up equity in your business or giving up board seats or giving up authority or control. So that was like a big thing for a lot of companies that were like, why would I go raise money from venture capital, give up 10%, 20% of my company, have some VC on my board and blah, 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 blah. So that was a big challenge for us was with us, we're focused primarily on that early stage venture side. So seeing some of these tokens that were going up 10, 20, 100x in a day or two, we definitely had some questions from our LPs that were like, we'd be willing to amend the mandate to allow for liquid investments. But I truly believe that the value would accrue on the venture side. So yeah, that was definitely a kind of an interesting period that October, November, December of 2017, where it seemed like anything that had a ticker, pretty much anything that was listed on CoinMarketCap was going up. 10, 20, 30% every day. So that was definitely an interesting time. But I guess on the flip side, you know, that was an advantage for us in the sense that our LPs or limited partners or the, the people that invest their capital into the fund and then we deploy their capital for them, they understood the venture capital methodology. They understood that we'd be a little bit slower to deploy. They understood that we would take our time and try to find the right fits. And they understood that model. So I think it would have been harder for me to say, hey, give me 25 million. I'm going to put it into some random token and there's no team and there's one line of code on GitHub. And But trust me, it'll work out. Like I, I probably could have, but I just I really felt that raising the fund the way we did and in, in the style that we did not only set us, but our LPs up for long-term success. And I think we've seen that over 2018 when that ICO bubble popped. 
we saw a lot of entrepreneurs come back in. They want to venture capital. They saw the value of having strategic investors on, on board. They saw the value of being able to work with portfolio companies. They saw the value of having people that have done this and invested tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars into this industry for the last five, six, seven years. Yeah. So I guess, to, you know, specifically answer your question, that Q4 of 2017 definitely was got a few emails or a few phone calls or that board meeting was a little bit interesting to, to be like, hey, why aren't you doing this? But but yeah, I think at the time, and I still believe we set us up for success, not only for, for us internally, but for our LPs to, to have to know that they were, we were managing their money in a way that was long-term focused and, and wasn't short-term. And I think that's something that we've seen a lot in crypto is like we talked about earlier, fund pops up, they invest in a few things. So if those few things go up in value, that, that kind of goes to their head a little bit. And then they put money into the next thing and that thing goes down just as quick. And then the fund's gone. So for us, having that cushion, having that long-term perspective and having that relationship with our LPs was, was more important. I think that's, you're always looking for an edge when you're investing and having long-term focused LPs that understand your mandate, understand the methodology and are really there for you have been a, an amazing advantage compared to some of the, the liquid funds that are dealing with like quarterly redemptions where you have this great setup at the last minute, the investor wants their money out. And all you want to do is say, hey, give me the next 30 days or the next 90 days. Let me make this investment. The money will go up. And they're like, no, I just want my money. I think both ways of setting up a fund have their own challenges. But but yeah, so that was an interesting period when, when it seemed like any token that uh, was getting listed was just going up in value. So Dan, you talked a little bit about how back in 2017, those um, tokens, people were raising capital as through vehicles, but they weren't giving up any equity. And it was a little bit harder for VCs to get into the space. How has tokenization affected capital raising farther? And do you, obviously we had the ICOs, then we had the STOs, and now we're almost in this like DeFi space where these token models are putting out governance tokens, and that's the way to govern and own uh, that asset. How do you see this evolving? And how are you guys participating in that space if you are at all? Yeah, great question. I think that there's a few different things. One thing that I think a lot of people haven't paid attention to recently is the Reg CF uh, adjustments. So before you could only raise a small amount of capital, I think it was up to a million dollars um, from a limited amount of non-accredited investors. And now you can raise up to five point something, a little over $5 million um, from non-accredited investors. And that was always like the big thing is the accreditation in investing has limited a lot of people that have the experience, they have the knowledge, they have the wealth, but they just haven't you know, gotten that accreditation yet. So I think that's been a big thing. And I think something that would disrupt the venture capital industry moving forward is, is if you're a VC that doesn't add any value, you're gonna you're not gonna get placements in any of these investments. And I know that's kind of cliche to say we're value add, but I think being in this industry for six, seven years, I think there's a lot of value that comes with that, a lot of experience, a lot of we've seen a lot of the good and the bad. So I guess the reg CF is definitely something for a lot of venture capitalists, whether you're in crypto or, or not in crypto, to be aware of. On the token side, I guess we've seen different elements. Like you said, we went through the ICOs and we went through STOs and we went through IEOs or initial exchange offerings. There's always been this like theory that you could raise non-dilutive capital and it'd be great. And don't get me wrong, I think like the idea behind that was valid. But I think even with a lot of those, a lot of those ICOs, you saw like pre-mines or you saw early allocations to, to venture capital investors at very reduced valuations. And those valuations were obviously better than it, they were when they hit public markets. So by the time that token went live, the early investors already made 5, 10, 20x. And then the public kind of gets in and if they made money, good for them. If they didn't, but the early investors already made money. 
So I think we've still had that insider, not insider trading, but the, the venture capitalists, especially in this industry, have, have had the value and the ability to get in early on a lot of things. And you brought up DeFi, and I think that still holds true. Like when you look at some of the most valuable tokens, Compound has raised venture capital money. Uniswap has raised venture capital money. They've since tried to go into the decentralization route of providing a token, providing a governance token, providing pass-through ability for revenues. But most of the most successful DeFi protocols have raised venture capital money. So I still think there's something to be said for that fact. But I, but I agree with you. I think we'll see a trend of the exit to community style where you'll have more community engagement. And then you start seeing companies like, like a sushi swap, which is like a Uniswap competitor that kind of popped out of nowhere. Excuse me, had a few lines of code uh, one night and they were able to take hundreds of millions of dollars in liquidity almost overnight. That was during the craze of yield farming. I think that the market was pretty frothy at the moment. But yeah, so I guess to answer your question, we've definitely seen new ways to invest in these markets. But I think one thing that you'll notice, whether it's DeFi or IEOs or ICOs or STOs or whatever acronym we come up with next, uh, I think you'll still see that venture capitalists are behind a lot of these projects. And I think there's a reason to that as well. For those venture-backed deals that you were talking about and referring to earlier and that you're, to be a venture-backed company, it requires a certain set of things. Assuming that the venture back, those venture-backed companies are meeting that set of criteria, what's the most important um, piece of the, the criteria from be, for being a venture-backed company that you guys focus on or that matters the most to you when evaluating a potential deal? Yeah, I think there's like a checklist. And I think we covered one earlier, just like the timing and kind of using that like Chewy or Pets.com example. There's a lot of companies that have a great idea, have a great concept, have a great product, have a great service, but the market's just not ready for it. And we've seen that in crypto a ton of time. The timing is a big one. The team is a big one. And I think that's one of the reasons why venture capital will stay around is the, the entrepreneurs that are coming around for a second time, or we're seeing, especially in the last two, three years, a lot of really successful entrepreneurs from other industries, whether they're in fintech or healthcare or sports and gaming or media, they're starting to get into crypto. So having someone who's raised capital before, having someone who's built a team before, having someone who's been able to recruit top talent to their team or organization is a big thing. Product market fit, timing, the team, the valuation is a big one. We've seen, and especially in early 2018, we passed on a lot of companies just because of the frothiness from the ICO market where they would look up and see token ABC raised $100 million. So they'd come in and be pre-product, pre-revenue and be like, we're raising a $10 million seed round at a $100 million valuation. It's like, in what world does that make sense? Like, <laughs> you have no ability to raise that. And if you're able to, I wish you the best of luck, but that doesn't make sense to us. So valuation is a big one. And we've seen, we've passed on deals where the valuation is, is just, it's too frothy for what the company can hold. And you always have that tug of war where the entrepreneur, the operator wants to get the most amount of capital for the least amount of equity to give up. And the venture capitalists sometimes will be the opposite. They're trying to get the most amount, but you, the, the best investments, the best teams and the best VCs try to find that middle ground where a venture capital investment company you know, gets to get a good allocation in a good team at a good valuation um, and is willing to not try to take the maximum amount to either bring in another strategic investor or to just, we've seen times where 
will ask a company to decrease the valuation a little bit, but increase the option pool for their employees so that they can go out and attract new people. So there's a lot of different ways to look at an investment, but I think those are some of the biggest ones. Just timing, product market fit, the team, the valuation are the four big buckets. And then there's a lot of kind of other checkpoints that you look off of. Is it a single founder? Are they co-founders? Do the, are the co-founders, are they aligned in the mission? Is one looking for a quick exit or quick acquisition where the other one's looking to sustainably scale a company long-term? Is the company able to hit, we talked about this early on, is the, is the company able to hit venture capital-like returns? And, and if we invest a million dollars in the company and we make 1.1 million back five years from now, like that's not very successful for us. And that doesn't really fit within our fund. But for an average investor, oh, I'm up 10%. But that just doesn't really work for us. So there's a lot of kind of intricate decisions that go into making that final investment. But there's definitely like a checklist that we go through of looking through the team, looking through the product, speaking to partners. A lot of times, if even if they're pre-product or pre-revenue, they'll typically have uh, a partnership that's in place, or we've had this MOA in place with company XYZ that's going to purchase our product or purchase our service. So meeting with employees, meeting with partners, meeting with other investors, whether they're previous investors or, or co-investors or potential co-investors are really big. So there, there's, as we mentioned earlier, there's a lot that goes behind running a venture capital firm than just we have $1 and we put $1 here. But those are some of the high profile things that we look at. And then there's a lot of things in the mix between the moment that our analyst first meets with the team before I meet with the team. And then for us, we have an investment committee where we meet as a team to finalize investment before it goes out. So even though my name's on the door and my name's on the firm, I'm not the sole, like I'm the sole GP. So I get to ultimately make the decision, but I still rely on my team heavily for their feedback, for their insight and for their, their experience and their knowledge. So uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of different factors and a lot of variables that go into play to, to finding the right fit, finding the right team, and really just believing in that team. And especially with where we invest at the seed and series A round, a lot of the times you're betting very heavily on that team. It's not, we can look at the, the company they're doing 10 million in revenue. And if we invest 5 million, they can get scaled to 50. There's times you can do that with a series B through series F or, or whatever. But typically on the earlier stage, some of our companies pre-product, pre-revenue, they've never sold anything. They still need to go hire new people. They need to do all these things. And that's really where that value add comes from. We can really set them up for success and really eliminate a lot of that headache, a lot of the time and take care of a lot of that backend stuff for them. So they can focus primarily on that product or on the service. So I know that's a lot to throw at, uh, a lot to throw out there all at once. But, uh, but yeah, there, there's definitely a, a, an interesting checklist to go through. And I think each firm kind of has their own perspectives on, on how to invest as well. So I don't think it's like a uniform standard at all. Dan, no, I appreciate you touching on all of those. I think there are key points for everyone who's looking to raise capital. That they understand what makes a VC-backed business, what makes it an appetite for a VC. When it comes to the team, you mentioned a couple of times new players coming onto this space, coming into blockchain in 2020, seeing the opportunity of maybe using the, the token models to incentivize communities and really just innovate with the overall technology we have here. My question for you is, is most of those guys, as you mentioned, have already had one successful either exit or a company and they have the experience in building the team. And as you mentioned, that's one of the most important things. But for you, it seems like you started at, at Goldman and then you went to the blockchain capital. Where did you get that hunger and that work ethic needed to be able to be at that level where you were able to get those early wins to then set yourself up in your career where you are today? 
Yeah, great question. I think even going back to Goldman, as we talked about through my educational experience, I, I originally went to a very small school in Pennsylvania called Indiana University of Pennsylvania, or IUP. It's, it's a I school in like- a there. That's like a very big party school I've heard. <laughs> Maybe it's something different. I had fun. I had fun. You're definitely thinking of the right one. It's like literally the IUP stands for I usually party or like that's what they are. Uh, but anyway, so I went to a really small school for the listeners that are listening, not to toot my own horn or anything, but I just worked with, with Forbes uh, last week to do like a profile on some of the nitty gritty of like my life. And I've had, you know, my share of ups and downs and got into a lot of trouble when I was in high school. And that kind of eliminated a lot of the options that were available to me to go to school. And I think IUP was willing to take a chance on me because I was from from out of state and was paying like five times more than someone from in state. So I think they're like, all right, we'll give this we'll give this knucklehead a shot. And if he doesn't work out, we just we made, uh, you know, a quick dollar. So anyway, so I guess the hunger came from the fact that I went to a really small school, like you said, my sister was very instrumental in getting me a foot in the door at some of these institutions. There is no reason why I should have ever gotten an internship, should have even gotten a, a, an interview, let alone. But that was the hunger where it came from. Like during my internship, I was the only person in my internship class that wasn't at Wharton, that wasn't at you know Goldman, or excuse me, Goldman, that wasn't at Harvard, that wasn't at Yale, that wasn't at one of these Ivy League schools. And I think that was humbling, but also at the same time, super exciting. And this is not like a knock on anyone that has successful parents or had a an easier childhood. But I came from an area where I really had to hustle and grind. And that hustle got me into some trouble. But that hustle also set me up for a lot of success. And I knew that once I was able to get my foot in the door with a company like that, that I would outwork, out hustle, out grind, do whatever I needed to do to show them that I was worth it. And I think that's the unfortunate part is Wall Street is still a very much a walled garden where if your dad didn't work on Wall Street or if your uncle didn't work on Wall Street, if you didn't go to the Ivy League or if you don't have some type of connection, it's a really difficult industry to get your foot in the door in. Like you said, I was very fortunate that my sister was able to be that conduit to me getting my foot in the door. And I knew that if I was able to get my foot in the door, that I'd be able to show the value that I could bring. And I think that hustle, that grind, that tenacity has carried me through everything, whether it was in traditional finance, whether that was early on in crypto, whether that was through Hanum Capital, or even now my day-to-day role with Zenledger, that, that hustle, that grind, that tenacity, doing things the right way, being very careful about the relationships that I craft and really caring about those relationships, making sure that I don't burn bridges. Just a lot of stuff that sounds very intuitive, but is hard to do really came from feeling that I was lucky to be in a position that I was in. And I knew that a lot of people would do a lot to get in that position. And I wasn't going to squander it. And I wasn't going to let it go to waste. And, you know, as I said, once I knew that I was able to get my foot in the door, I was the one that was getting into the office three hours before it opened. I was the one that was leaving at midnight, probably not the most healthiest thing for my my mental mental uh, health or uh, sleep schedule. But I was just, I was hungry and I was willing and I was so thankful and grateful that someone was able to give me a chance. And also when you have someone that vouches for you or someone that's willing to put their name on the line to get your foot in the door, there's a sense of obligation to make sure that you don't make them look like a fool. And and I wanted to make sure that my sister and her friend who was able to put me at the, the top of the list for the internship internship class that they weren't three months later, like you guys, who is this kid? Why? You're an idiot. He should have never been here. So there's a lot of factors that came into play. And right around that time, not to get into anything too crazy, but I had made the decision to, to stop drinking alcohol. And that was a game changer for me. It, it really cleared my head and made me realize what was important to me in life, who was important, what I wanted to spend my time on. And as we talked about, that was why I was willing to take 
I think when I was leaving Morgan Stanley, I think I was making like 350 a year. I was like 23. From the outside, a pretty decent life, but I was just like miserable. I was working like 18 hour days. I wasn't fulfilled with what I was doing. And I really sat back and I had a lot of really great mentors that were like, you're going to make money wherever you go. You're going to be successful wherever you go. So go do something that you actually want to do. And that's once again, was very fortunate that someone was able to give me a, a position within crypto where I could make a little bit of money, have a roof over my head, have some food in the fridge. But I think it all started from that, that hunger, that tenacity and, and the ability to really take control of my life. And I knew that if I could get myself out of the way that I could make my life wherever I wanted it to go. So that's where that like hunger or drive or tenacity came from. And, and I think it's carried over, you know, well to the other positions that I've gone through. And I think that's been a big blessing of, of me is I've always tried to do things in, in the right way. So when I left to Goldman, when I left to Morgan, when I left to Blockchain Capital, making sure you give notice, making sure you leave on the right terms, those relationships have come back tenfold where, you know, a friend at Goldman's like, hey, my friend's raising capital, they're doing X, Y, Z. And it's you get a, you get an introduction there. No, no, not to keep rambling too hard. But, but yeah, so I think it came from just a place of gratitude and thankfulness and, and knowing it's a scary thing to think of. But for me, I, I feel more comfortable knowing when the ball is in my court than when it's in someone else's court. And I think a lot of people have this, I don't want to say fake, but they have the sense of security when you're an employee that every Friday or you know every two weeks you get your paycheck. But that just seems secure to me. And I saw so many people get fired instantly or, or laid off or just thrown out with the wind. And it was like, my life is my life. And, and I I think if I can not control it, but if if... I'm very willing to bet on myself is, is how I wrap that up. Dan, no, that was all great. There's so many follow-up questions I have after that. One of the things I do want to touch on, you mentioned in in the Forbes article that you were recently featured and where you went in that deep dive. If, you, if you're a listener, it'll be linked in the show notes. It was a really great read to just understand your background. And in that kind of the end of that article, you mentioned something where it says to get unstuck, you've got to identify where you're at where you want to go and what you can do today to support where you want to go. Creating your life is about knowing exactly where you are and then doing things for exactly where you want to go. I, I agree with you completely here. And one of the things that I've been telling myself and have been working on is that fictional reality or the fictional perception of ourselves we have in the future and trying to get that almost as close as you can to where your current situation is and then building from there. And so on to that with that topic in mind, what are compounding activities or what compound activities are you working on every day? And how long have you been working on um, these different problems where you're working on these habits and really building results? As you mentioned, it takes a lot of time and you have that longer outlook and you've been betting on yourself. Yeah, great question. I, I think something we touched on briefly was the sobriety aspect. And I think the, the longer you go sober, the, the easier it tends to get. But it's still somewhat like a daily battle, daily struggle. And especially when you start seeing success, it's really easy to get back in kind of those old habits of those old ways. And I think that was the, the story I kept telling myself was I had a good degree. I had a good MBA. I worked at a good firm, a firm that everyone across, like pretty much anyone uh, who has an internet connection has heard of Goldman before. So I had all these things on paper where I was like, oh, my life is good. I'm making really good money. All these like kind of things that like when, from the outside looking in, you're like, oh, like you must live a great life. Internally, I was drinking a lot, living in New York City. Unfortunately, there, there's not too many activities that, that you can do outside of going to, this is all pre-COVID, going to bars, going to nightclubs, going to restaurants. One of my first positions was in our client success department. Literally, I think I got paid like 80 grand a year just to take people golfing and take them to restaurants and take them to dinner. And it was like, 
the best job you could ever imagine coming out of school. You're like, wait, you're going to pay me to go do this stuff? That kind of just led me down to a spiral where it was a couple of drinks at, at a dinner, then a couple of drinks because a football game I was on. Then it was a couple of drinks because it was a day ending in Y. And it just spiraled in, in that sense. But I think I kept holding on to the fact that I was like, I have good friends and I went to school and I have I don't have a DUI. And like, my wife's not divorcing me or all these kind of like rock bottom things where I think people like people don't realize that you can change your life before you hit that kind of rock bottom. I guess to answer the question specifically, drinking is definitely a big one. I'm very fortunate enough that I'll be five years sober uh, of alcohol in March of, of 2021. So that's something that, like you said, it's definitely now going into year four and a half, year five. It's not as day to day as it was for the first, you know, 30, 60, 90, 120 days where it was a, a real struggle to, to, you know, stay sober and and not drink. So that's a big one. And that's opened up a lot of other doors to more of a holistic lifestyle. So whether it's like dieting, whether it's just eating well, going to sleep on time, actually having a sleep schedule was another big thing that I didn't care about forever. I was worked to the office till 1 a.m., 2 a.m., go to sleep for three hours and wake back up at 5 a.m. and go right back to the office. And that was part of that like hungry tenacity work ethic. But at the same time, it, it's not very sustainable. And that's really where my, my, my focus has shifted into short term thinking into long term sustainability. And that's not only through the way that we invest, but the way that I live my life, eating healthy, going to sleep on time, having a good sleep schedule. For me, I do yoga three times a week. I'm like, I'm fortunate enough that in I live here in Los Angeles, and we have great beaches and, and great hiking trails. So going out hiking, going to going out on my paddleboard, going out surfing, and just being outdoors and, and in nature has been really impactful for me. Breath work and meditation has been a big one physical activity. I'm a former athlete, more of a wash up has been than, a, than an athlete. At this point, some part of my head likes to think that I still have a, a step here or there, whether it's getting out and running or just going to the gym or even now like having some dumbbells laying around the house or, or throwing up YouTube and watching like a, a yoga class or a Tai Chi class or a home workout class where you don't even need weights, you can just do a lot of like body work and core work and push ups and pull ups and sit ups and a lot of boring stuff, but like stuff that like really makes you strong really quick. Yeah, I guess that's the way that my mindset has shifted into what can I do today that puts me in a great position tomorrow. And I think the tail end of that quote that you brought up earlier kind of highlights that as well is I forget the exact wording I put, but be impatient with your actions, be patient with your results or something like that. And I think that's really true is you can only control today and you can only control this hour. You can only control this moment. And if you can continue to do the right things day in and day out over the course of a week, probably nothing's going to change. But if you keep trying to go to bed, my, my motto is I want to go to bed with a couple more dollars than I did with when I woke up with some better relationships with, with better, a better feeling, just knowing that I've improved myself every single day. It's been a really amazing. So like viewing myself as like a software, like you have version 0.01 and then 0.2 and 0.3. And, and that's how I, I view myself is if I can continue to prove each and every day when I look up six months or 12 months or 18 months or in March, it'll be five years without drinking. And if I look at where my life was five years ago versus now, it's night and day. But that didn't come from just saying, oh, I'm going to do this in five years. It came from I'm going to do this today. I'm going to choose not to drink today. I'm going to choose to go on a run. I'm going to choose to eliminate the people from my life that aren't adding value. It's, I'm, I'm going to choose to welcome in the people who I thought were weird because they didn't want to drink. The people that were like, yo, let's go play chess. Let's go do some other, let's go golf or let's go do something other than just sit at a bar for four hours. I'm like, that sounds horrible. So it's, I guess the way I look at it is if you can make those long-term decisions, but be very short-term in the way that you do that, just continue to improve each and every day. You'll look back over the course of a year, or the, over the course of two years, and I think your life will be night and day. But 
I think that's something that sobriety really taught me is, uh, and I know this may be a little controversial because some parts of Alcohol Anonymous or other groups are, are, are very religious focused, but I truly believe in, in my heart that it's a decision that I make every day. And I, I believe that if I wanted to go to the grocery store right now and buy a 12 pack of beer, I could. And if I wanted to come home and drink them all, I could. So for me, I truly believe that I'm making that choice not to drink. And I'm making that choice to surround myself with people that, you know, are welcoming to that to that moment. And that doesn't mean that, you know, everyone in my life doesn't drink. It just means that like the people that would drink 18 beers because it was a uh, Sunday and we're watching the, the Redskins game or excuse me, the football team game or whatever they're called now. It was just a, a different topic. I, I guess that's the way I view it. I think that's, I think a lot of people got some value out of the end of that article because I think people look up and that like Bill Gates quote of you underestimate what you can do in whatever, a year, and you overestimate what you can do in 10 years, it, it's true. And, and you just need to break it down, take it day by day. And and that's the key. But the, the last thing that I would say is just you are on this earth to live your own life. And if you're okay with living, you know, the life that you're living, then good for you. I just I wasn't okay living in kind of mediocrity. And I wasn't okay with knowing that I could do more and knowing that I could be a better person and knowing that I could have better relationships and knowing that there was just so much more out there for me to enjoy and experience and do in life. And like I said, I knew once I could get my own self out of the way that I could be able to go experience those things and have those memories, have those relationships and have that, that, uh, that time. So I guess that's kind of like the way I look at kind of those like sustainable habits is pick some that add value to your life, but stay true to them. And, And make sure that you continue them even when you start feeling a little bit better. And I think that was always a challenge for me is you wake up on a Sunday morning after going out all night on a Saturday. And I'm sure we're not the only ones that have probably said, I'm never drinking again. And then Monday, Tuesday rolls around. You have you haven't drank for a few days, maybe worked out once or twice. You've gone to work, you've hung out with some people and you're like, oh, like I feel better. And then, then those decisions don't become as prudent. Yeah, not to ramble too much. I think just making sure that you're focusing on what's important to you, living the life that you want to live is number one. But I think there's a lot of people out there that have that inkling for more and they're willing to not, or I don't know if willing is the right word. They're just, they're not as hungry to go chase whatever that is. And I think I'm, I'd rather go on my deathbed and be like, I wish I didn't do that. Then I wish I would have. And that may be right. That may be wrong, but I'm very thankful for all the good and the bad in my life because it's put me to the point where I am today. And I know a lot of people, whether it was high school or whether it was college, especially from my area, right in the Northern Virginia, D.C. area, where it's you're supposed to do everything the right way. You're supposed to go to school. You become a doctor. You become a lawyer. And you're supposed to have this amazing life on paper. But a lot of those people that I know are like miserable. They have a mortgage that they can't pay for. They have five kids they can't like really spend time with. And it's just I was willing, once again, whether it's life or, or business or whatever, to go bet on myself. And, and it, it's worked out pretty well. You Wow. Thanks, Dan. That was a lot. I appreciate it. I think my, one of my favorite quotes was you said, you're on this earth to live your own life. And that life, everyone has their own idea of what that taste looks like for them and has their own um, goals and things they're they're working on. So that was amazing. One of the questions I had after you mentioned that was your accountability network. And I know it's super important when you're working on changing, you know, challenging yourself, changing some of these maybe core ways you're looking at your life and trying to build these compounding ha- daily habits. How have you seen, how has your accountability group changed, I guess, over the years since five years ago to where you are now? And how is that, how have those people supported you or that network of people supported you over the years? Yeah, great question. I, th- I think there's two things in there. The, the, the one thing that my mentor taught me uh, a long time ago was 
when you're looking to elevate your life, having three buckets of people around you is really important. You want one bucket where you're a little bit farther ahead. You want one bucket where you're pretty much neck and you want one bucket where you're really behind. The bucket where you're a little bit ahead allows you to know that you're doing pretty well and that you're, it's not necessarily like a comparison, but it's, you can peg where you are versus where someone else is at. Having that head to head person is what kind of drives you day in and day out, whether that's a friend, a relative, whether that's in a business, you'll typically have some competitors that are doing the same exact thing as you and knowing that you're competing and and thriving is going to benefit you both. And then having someone that's way ahead of you. And that's where I've been really lucky is I've been able to get really great mentors that have been there and done that. And they're willing to go lend their time back to me and say, hey, I've been in your shoes and I've been there and I've done that. And I wish I could say that I've listened to every single advice, but there's a lot of things that I've had to screw up on my own to figure out. But those are the three buckets that I really look at. And I think if you can find those people around you, whether they're students or, or colleagues or other professionals, it's really important just to have someone you're a little bit ahead of, someone you're competing with, and someone that's really ahead of you. Really helps you put stuff in perspective and really allows you to continue to move forward. And then on the other end, to answer more specifically the question, it's been a whirlwind. A lot of the people that I was around five, six, seven years ago, I don't talk to at all now. And that may sound like super depressing or like super like, oh, well, that kind of sucks. But for me, it was such a blessing. It's a cliche topic. You like you are who you surround yourself with, but it kind of is. And as much as I like to think that I've been like a leader my whole life, I've definitely been a follower. I've definitely been peer pressured into other things. Or if you're with four people and those four people, all they want to do all day is drink, smoke, pop pills, do whatever, like you're probably going to fall into that trend because those are the people you're surrounding with. And those are the priorities that like your friend group and your tribe really care for. So it's definitely been like a 180. Like the people that are in my life now, I guess on the new side are people that enjoy bettering themselves. And that's not necessarily just physical or mental or whatever. It's like holistically just being like a better person each day. And I think being a better person for me equals hitting those buckets. So like having a decent physical physique typically shows that you care about yourself and typically shows that you're willing to work pretty hard to get to that perspective. It's pretty hard to whatever bench XYZ or keep a six pack or whatever. Like you have to make some sacrifices, whether it's your diet or your eating habits or just going to the gym. A lot of, we all have time to binge watch Netflix for 10 hours, but we all are like, I don't know if I want to go to the gym for an hour. So it's finding the right priorities. And then I've been fortunate enough to have a really great support system, like really close to me. So like my mom, my sister, some like really close friends from growing up have been there for me along the way. And I think that's why that Forbes article is really cool for me is I have a lot of people in my life especially from like middle school, high school, that like the last time they saw me, I was in handcuffs getting sent away. And now they see me like on, on they log into Forbes.com and see my face on, on the front page and then vice versa. There's a lot of people over the last five years that have seen this like meticulously crafted, well-organized, well-put-together person. And there's no way that like you went through all that other stuff. But anyway, so I've, I've been fortunate enough to have a really solid group of, of friends and family that have stuck with me through thick and thin good times, bad times, and we'll continue to do that. And I'm a very loyal person. So those people are, are the ones that will get anything they need from me, whether it's my time, my money, my connections, my resources, whatever I can do, they know that they I got them and they got me. And that's amazing. And then that outside friend group has, has definitely changed over the last five, six years. Like I'm no longer willing to be in positions that I don't want to be in. And that sounds really selfish. But once again, we talked about it. It's, it's your life. And if you're not selfish with your own life, then no one else is going to care about it. So being able to craft who I spend my time with, being able to craft people around me that don't have drama. And, and that's not to say that life 
throws curveballs at you all the time. So it's not like everyone around me lives this perfect, meticulous, nothing ever happens in their life. But there's there's life drama and then there's drama that like we create. And like that created drama is what I've been able to get rid of and just have people that are around me that are, that enjoy bettering themselves. And there's things that I enjoy doing and there's things that they enjoy doing. And we have the, those trade-offs where they're doing something that's really cool and really interesting. And I like to learn about that. And like vice versa, I'm doing something that's really cool and they like to learn about that. Just having people that really want to continue to better themselves each day weeds a lot of people out of your life because it's, it's not very common to find that. But once you find that and you get that tribe around you, that tribe can be really instrumental into how you continue to move forward throughout your life. So Dan, with that supportive tribe that you're mentioning, you know, that is one of the most important things for being able to take, you know, the risks that you've taken so far in your life to get to where you are today through Goldman, through through launching your firm, through being an analyst. I guess I want to hit on that risk question, which is in your eyes, what is the biggest risk that you've taken so far in your life and how did that end up paying out or how is that playing out currently? The, the one that I would put, as the biggest risk was probably early on. And I think I touched on a little bit in that Forbes article was when I was like 16 or 17 years old, I, I had a big tendency and habit and enjoyment for uh, for cannabis. And it started off pretty small where me and a friend and then me and a friend of a friend and yada yada and so on and so forth. Had another friend who had an older brother who was in college at the time. So we were able to get a, a lot of quantity. And then we went from like eighth grade into high school and you go to high school with, I think our graduating class was like a couple thousand people, like very big area. So anyways, one of my biggest risks, I, I think, was starting this like <laughs> like weed selling business pretty much. Like I had people from all these different surrounding schools that were selling it for me. I was like the CEO of the organization, had like my lieutenants. And if you've ever seen like the show Wire, it gives you like a good example of trying to make this into a sustainable business. And taking that risk really taught me a lot about business. It taught about marketing, supply chain management, accounting, finding the right people. We talked about team and venture, having the right people along, even if you're selling weed, it's super important to have good people that aren't stealing from you, people that, that you trust, et cetera. So that was a really big risk, but it had a lot of really big rewards. But also that risk turned into kind of like that big element in my life that my life really changed from. So I ended up getting in, in a lot of trouble I had a couple run-ins with, with the law. And then one night it was more of a bust. Someone down the, the line had gotten caught and said, you know, some stuff. And I was driving down the street one night and about four or five cop cars came out of nowhere, not like a typical traffic stop, like surrounded my car, went right to the trunk. It, it was it was a very well-planned organization and operation. And that was uh, the end of my athletic career. I was playing three varsity sports at the time, got kicked off those sports about two months later, got kicked out of the entire school, got kicked out of our entire county like school system. And then I ended up spending like a little over a year of my life in a, in a juvenile detention center in a six by six concrete slab for 20 hours a day. And that risk really sucked. But that was like one of the best things of my life is it really one, if I didn't get in trouble, then I would have kept going and a year and a half later, I've been 18. And that would have been like the end of my life. So I'm very fortunate that it all happened when I was a juvenile, not only because of the sentencing, but also because of being a juvenile, you can go through different programs. Well, they'll expunge your record if you meet, you know, certain standards. And that's, once again, I got very lucky that on the day of my sentencing, there's this program called Beta, which was like an 11 or 12 person program. And if you're able to get through that, you had kind of these perks and you're able to continue to build back your life. And anyways, I was 
I was supposed to be getting sent down to Hanover, Virginia, which is was a facility, a juvenile facility right across from a prison. And li- literally, they send you there so that when you turn 18, you like you walk across the street and you continue your time in in big boy prison. So that was supposed to be my life. And, and that was just like, all right, I, I, I've effed this one up and that's it. And I'm done. And the day I was supposed to go to sentencing, one of the kids like fought a guard and got kicked out and they had one spot open. And I, I somehow got that spot, was able to get my head back on my shoulders. In Fairfax County, it's a very like wealthy area. So we had really great support staff around us. Like we had drug and alcohol people as part of the program. We had therapists we met with every week. We had like yoga and Tai Chi classes. We had all these things to try to help rehabilitate me and the people that were in our program. So long story short, I think the the biggest risk reward was definitely that. The risk was doing, making those decisions I made. The rewards was a lot of that lifestyle. Like I think I was like a 15 year old kid making 10, 15, 20 grand a a week when the teacher who was trying to teach me science was making like 30 grand like the whole year. So that that reward was there, but then also getting into trouble really was the, the biggest blessing for me because it helped me get on the right track. I was able to sit there for a year and just read books and study. They were they allowed me to leave the facility for a day to go take the SAT, which allowed me to get into school. But yeah, that's like really where my life changed. I, I don't, I think, I genuinely think if I didn't get in trouble at that time, I just would have kept going. I would have kept getting more and more involved and the operation would have kept bigger and bigger. And then I would have been 18 and it would have been game over. Yeah, I think that's like the biggest risk that I've taken was being uh, the risk was making decisions that allowed other people to have control over your life. And that sucked. Knowing that I I couldn't go shower when I wanted to, I couldn't go leave when I wanted to, I couldn't even stand up when I wanted to, I couldn't eat when I wanted to, like lights out was at 9pm. So like the first few weeks, I'm used to being up at 2-3am partying, I'm like, sober staring at a concrete wall. And like hoping I can fall asleep. Yeah, it was a it's a very crazy experience, one that I don't wish upon anyone, but one that really set my my trajectory in life in a different path and one that really made me very comfortable with me. And as we talked about, when you're in a six by six cell for 20 hours a day with no phone, no laptop, no nothing, you really get to know yourself pretty quick because there's nothing else to really do. And and that's something that I I'm very grateful for and something that I think a lot of people haven't had the experience because sitting with yourself and sitting with those like those demons and those those things that you don't like about yourself is not very comfortable. And a lot of people don't have to do that because they're not forced to and and being forced to really understand who I was as a person, what I wanted to do, where I wanted to be, who I wanted like who I wanted to be. I didn't even know who I was. I was just like I was some kid trying to figure out his life and so yeah, that was uh, the biggest risk reward and, and the best kind of underhanded blessing that has ever come around. And then I was fortunate to be able to get into IUP. And then that led me into the University of South Carolina. I ended up transferring because the internship, they're like, you need to go to school that you know actually has a business program. And then that led to a lot of different things. So that was probably like the biggest risk, but also biggest inflection point of my life. It was uh, that, that that year and a half from 16 to 17 and a half. No, that, that sounds like a huge inflection point, just about how your identity was changing. As you mentioned, being able to ask those questions of yourself, of what you want in life, where you want to go, having that year, many 17, 18 year old kids, they don't get that opportunity. It's just not it's not, they don't have to think about it. They're in their own protected space. They go to college, they're just following the steps and they're not actually asking themselves those hard questions of what is the life they want to live? And it sounds like that that risk that you took ended up providing an opportunity where you were able to make, have those, to make those questions, make those 
have that conversation with yourself and then, then move forward. Dan, so my last question or one of my last questions with you today is I want to understand you. Know, where do you see yourself in, in two years? And what are you most excited about when working with Zen, the Zen, Zen Ledger and your day-to-day job there? Yeah, I don't know. Where I see myself in two years is I've never really been good at that. As we talked about earlier, like I've never been good at being like in two years, in five years, in 10 years. I'm like, what can I do today? And if I can continue to do the things I'm doing today, then in two years, I'll be okay. And that's like the saving grace for me is my day-to-day life is largely in my control, which I'm very thankful for. I have my own company. That's We, we have eight full-time people working for me on the Hanum Capital side. On the Zenlander side, we're about to, up to about 20 full-time people across eight states and two countries. So I'm very thankful that I have two businesses, two methods of income, two things that not only just on that short-term income, but two, two companies that are doing very well that I own significant positions in. One, especially on the Zenlander side, has a really good opportunity to have an exit in the next few years. We have about 30,000 US customers, US-based paying customers, which when you start looking at the landscape in crypto, there's not that many companies that can say we've raised about five and a half million dollars in capital from some of the leading angels and investors in our space. We've been able to scale a really great team. You know, I, we've gone through my trajectory, my background. Brian, our CTO, sold his last business for $2.3 billion. He's been there. He's done that. Our, our CEO, Pat, has been around the block with his own businesses. He was Chicago Booth MBA, Air Force captain. As we talked about going through that checklist on an investment, the same checklist I went through on joining a team. And I was always looking for the right opportunity to get back on the entrepreneur side of the table, really was really wanted to be a part of something and building something. And I think investing is great. And I've learned a ton from investing. We're still actively deploying capital, but really being on the day to day has been really rewarding and also really challenging. We talked about, you look on the outside of a lot of companies and all these good stuff, but like the day to day, there's a lot of blood, sweat, tears, anger, emotion, happiness, joy, et cetera, that goes into running that. And that's, that's life. Like the, all the messy middle is like the fun stuff. I don't know if fun's the right word, but the, the, the rewarding stuff. So I don't know where I'm going to be at in two years. I just know that if I can continue to make the right decisions day in and day out, then that'll take care of itself. As far as Zen Ledger, I'm really bullish as obviously I'm very biased as an investor now an operator of the company, but we walked through the executive and C-suite team, but We've been able to assemble a really great staff, not only on our development side, on our sales side, on our customer support side. As I, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm definitely very biased as an investor now and operator, but I truly believe we have not only the best customer service in crypto, but one of the best products in crypto and one that actually is needed. And you can always get into the, the conversation on taxes. Should we pay taxes? Should we not? But but that's a decision that I don't get to make. So all I can do is taxes are a thing. And if we can make them simple and easy for, for users, that's a win. And, and that's what really led me into, into Zenledger at the beginning was I, the, the first IRS notice around having to file crypto taxes came out in 2014. And I know a lot of people are just now waking up to the fact that they need to pay taxes, but it's been a thing for six years that if you are investing in crypto and not paying your taxes, obviously we can get you squared away. But but anyway, so at the time I was using like handwritten notes and Excel spreadsheets and Google Docs. And it was just like a mess. So having software, I could just throw in an API key for an exchange, throw in a wallet address and be done. And it would just auto populate my tax forms. I was like, that's great. And those are some of the best companies is as a founder, as an investor, would you use this product? Would you use this service? And not only me, but pretty much everyone I knew back in like early 2016, early 2017, especially in 16, when the market was starting to increase, and then 2017, things went crazy. 
a lot of people are making a lot of money and had no idea how to handle any of their taxes. And a lot of these people also have other things. Like they have a K-1 from running their own company or they have a W-2. They have a real estate income. They have XYZ outside of crypto. So making sure that you have your crypto and non-crypto accounting and taxes done, it's like a no-brainer. So anyways, looking through that checklist that we talked about earlier, good team, good product, good service. The beautiful part about our company is it's not optional. You have to do your taxes, or I guess technically it's optional, but we would recommend you choose the option where you don't get thrown in jail for not paying them. So that's, yeah, that's been nice. And then also the element about crypto is, as we talked about earlier, whether it's an ICO, an STO, an IEO, DeFi, NFTs, they all circle back to having a taxable element to them, tracking cost basis across 30 different blockchains, tracking cost bases across, buying an NFT on OpenSea and then selling it on or like even listing it on Decentraland. There's so much complexity that goes into really providing great accounting and great tax help. And now we've been able to bring on tax professionals to our team that can help you with your crypto and non-crypto taxes. So we have a lot of people that they just don't want to have to handle it. They don't want to think about it. They just want someone to do it for them. And we can now do that for them as well. Incredibly bullish on our team, on our product, on on the industry. There's a lot of things that we've seen. Like we uh, were featured in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago for the IRS was moving the question of if you've ever invested in crypto from the Schedule 1, which is a form that you that not everyone gets, but some people do, to the top of the 1040, which is a form that every single American gets. So, you know, that is going to increase enforcement. If you go on and say no, and it comes to be yes, like, you're probably not the best move. And I think something that, you know, you and I probably know, but some people may not know is whether you're using DeFi, whether you're using Bitcoin, pretty much, as long, even if you're using like Zcash and Monero, there's ways to track this information. And not only from a chain analysis, elliptic, cipher trace level, but from a tax and accounting perspective as well. So we, there's no longer the days where you can not file, not like care about it, not really and get away with it. The IRS has come after some bigger name people. We've seen John McAfee, who was extradited from another country from, from back taxes just this year, not just from taxes, but other things. But the ability to get him out of other countries came from the, the United States Tax Authority. So anyways, you know, long story short, super, super bullish on what we're doing at Zenledger. We've been able to invest millions of dollars into our IP our technology, our team over the last few years. And we're now in a position where a lot of people are looking for tax and accounting help, especially with DeFi. I think really only us and token tax are the only two companies out of 15 that have actual DeFi integrations. Like we support, I think 30, they support maybe 2025. We're now the only crypto tax platform that supports NFTs. So we're, and that's the beauty as we talked about earlier from being in this space five, six, seven years is I have those relations. I have those connections, investing personally, my own capital in a lot of these things. So being ahead on DeFi, we were pretty early on DeFi. Being ahead on NFTs, we were early on NFTs. Whatever comes after that, like DAO infrastructure, we can help out DAOs and, and the investors behind the DAOs on their tax and accounting. So long story short, super bullish on Zenledger, super bullish on Hanum Capital. The amazing thing for, for both is that both are completely remote and distributed. I'm sure you're familiar with, with LA right now. If we had a storefront, we'd probably be shut down. So the ability to have both of my companies online, the ability to be able to not only hire, retain, but now give you know that security to all of our employees that we have capital in the bank, our runways, three, four, five years, it has been really rewarding. And to know that roughly 30, 35 people are trusting in me to make the right decisions day in and day out for their own livelihood, it's been really amazing. And I, I don't have a wife, I don't have kids but a lot of our employees do. And the fact that their families are now relying on me and Pat and Brian to make 
smart, articulate decisions on the future of our company, and those decisions affect them directly, is a really magical place to be in. So I, I don't take for granted the fact that I've been able to assemble two great teams, two great companies. I'm really bullish on, on the investment style that we have at Hanum Capital and then the team that we've assembled at Zenlander. Like I said, it's just very grateful, very thankful of the positions that I'm in. And as long as I can continue to make right decisions and, and live life with, with integrity and keep moving forward, then I think we're going to be in a good position, whether it's me personally or Zenlander or Hanum Capital. Dan, thanks for sharing all of that. I appreciate it. I appreciate you touching in not only on your personal life and getting vulnerable there, but then also touching on Zen Ledger and giving some advice to these young founders that are looking to, to raise venture capital. Before we close up for the day, I wanted to go through some rapid fire questions real quick, and there'll be about three or four questions, and then we'll uh, close it up and let you tell everyone where they can connect with you online. The first question I have is, what is your favorite Arizona iced tea? <laughs> I'm I'm a good old Arnold Palmer guy. It's uh the, the nice mix between some lemonade and iced tea just hits the spot. And I'm the one thing that I always get get shit for. Sorry, I, I don't know if like language <laughs> okay. is cool, but uh, the one thing I always get some some stuff for is that I'm incredibly cheap with, with the things that I don't care about. I enjoy the car. Like I have a, a vehicle that I really like. I have where I rest my head at night is, is something that I really enjoy. But drinking a 99 cent Arizona iced tea, like I love it. It, it tastes good. I spend a dollar. It's it's perfect. So yeah, I probably have to go with Arnold Palmer. It's, he's a great guy. He's a legend, and uh, he definitely knows how to make a good drink. And that was a, a great one there. Didn't he? Did he pass away this year, or was it that was that him that passed away? I think, or was that someone else? Do you know? That was recently. Yeah, I think it was in the last like two, three yeah, years. Was, okay, I just remember that happening on Twitter and you know, the whole world crying about it. What is your best tip for making the world a better place? God, getting getting deep on me. I don't know. I think we talked about it earlier. I just think, I think if not to get corny, but like the, the Michael Jackson man in the mirror stuff, like it starts with you. And, and if you can make your life a better place, make the people around whose life better, then like it's that pay it forward method where, you know, that stuff builds and that stuff is sustainable and that stuff really makes an impact. And I think starting with you has been, or starting with you speaking from, I guess, the third person is like the most impactful and you know, I'm very fortunate to be in the place I am now. And as we talked about, I've had mentors and people along the way that have opened up doors for me. And for me to be able to now be in the position where I can give back, whether that's my time, my money, my, you know, small intelligence, I can, I can, you know, hopefully help other people out. And that's been something that's near to and near and dear to me. And also highlighted a little bit in that Forbes article is every year I spend about a week with, with, with a, uh, an organization called Experience Camps, which are, are camps for kids that have lost a, a parent, a sibling or guardian. They're free one week camps where where kids can come and just be a kid, but also be around other kids that are going through the same thing. And my father passed away when I was six years old. And I think that obviously had a very big impact on my life and not really having a male figure around. And especially in my area, a lot of people around me had very good family structures. Not many people really got divorced. They had a mom, they had a dad, they had some security at home. And I just didn't have that. And I think that's really important to me is a lot of these kids are now being exposed that they're not the only one. You, you, like you have friends, you have support network around, you have the counselors, you have this really amazing family that's going to be there for you. And then the other one is is ARC, which is a, a organization here in LA, which is the Anti-Recidivism Coalition. And recidivism is basically just like the, the percentage or the rate of people that are getting incarcerated and go back. And ARC is really focused on youth. And as we touched on, I've Unfortunately, I made some some bad decisions in, in in my life when I was when I was a kid and had to suffer the consequences. And if I think it, it's it's always helpful to be someone who's been there and done that. And I think that's 
always what we had growing up. It'd be some random Joe Blow that came in and was like, don't do drugs. And it's okay, I don't care about what you're saying. But like for me to come in, tell my story and be like, hey, you know, I was like one of you. If anything, I've gone through some deeper shit and was able to get out on the other side and let me let me try to be here for you. And it's not something where I get to live their lives for them. Mistakes are made, things are happen. But to know that you have a support network, whether it's because you've lost a, a family member, a sibling, a guardian, or a lot of those kids have, a lot of the kids in ARC have lost a fathers in prison, mothers on drugs, and they don't have a support system. So the streets become their support system. So Anyways, long story short, I know this is supposed to be rapid fire. I think if, if you start with yourself and, and you really do what you can to make you the best person that you can be and live by your own set of values and guidelines and morals, that's how you can really start to make an impact on the world. And as you continue to make yourself a better person, you can be a better mentor, a better leader, a better advocate for people that are going through the same things that, that you're going through. So Dan, where can our listeners connect with you online after the podcast, after this amazing conversation? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I believe my handle is just dhanum, D-H-A-N-U-M-8. Pretty active on Twitter. I'm trying to think if anyone in the audience is on Clubhouse. I'm pretty active on Clubhouse, which has been really fun. Jess Sloss, who, who runs a company in the space called Seed Club, and I do a, a weekly meetup every Wednesday at 9 p.m. Pacific. So if you're on Clubhouse, feel free to come in and tune in tomorrow. Just we wanted to create a, a safe space where you know we could come in and talk crypto and get into the weeds a little bit but also welcome people that are just trying to get in and just trying to get involved. So pretty active on Clubhouse, really active on Twitter, and then on email as well. My email is just dan at zenledger.io. So if you need any tax help, tax accounting, you have some questions, more than happy to get you squared away. And then on the investment side, my, my email is just dh at hanumcapitalmanagement.com. I know it's always a weird thing for people to give out their emails, but I'm here to help in any way I can. If you have a product that makes no sense, you'll probably hear a no pretty quickly. But if you have a, you got a good product, good team, good, uh, good, good traction going on, we'd love to, to meet with you and see how we can be helpful. And once again, it probably sounds really cliche, but there's a lot of investments where we passed on and, and have been very helpful to those teams moving forward. It just didn't make sense from a, a pure investment and pure number perspective. Hopefully people can see that I'm not a perfect individual. I've had my ups and downs, my mistakes, and I'm trying to just take things day by day and keep getting better. And if there's anything that I can do to help people out, feel free to shoot me a DM on Twitter or shoot me an email and love to see how I can help anyone out. Thank Dan. Thanks again for coming on and for all that advice and for all those stories and definitely reach out to him guys. If you're looking to raise some money for your venture backable business. Thanks again, Dan. I appreciate the time. Thanks man. Thanks for having me on. Of course. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of digital gold. Be sure to subscribe. So you're notified when the new episode drops. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review to support our journey to become the number one crypto podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, mine on.